0: Welcome back to the show. You are listening to Talking Your Way to Change, the podcast that educates you about optimal mental health and psychotherapy. I am the host, Dr. Banker, and I'm coming to you from Minneapolis, Minnesota. I want to thank all of you listeners who have been coming on this journey with me. I am now venturing into the second season. This has been a profound learning journey as I learned to navigate the podcasting industry. Although it has been challenging, connecting with other mental health specialists and diving into the psychological research allows me to fill my own cup. If you are enjoying Talking Your Way to Change, thanks for tuning in. Please consider subscribing to the show. Subscribing is one of the ways for me to reach broader audiences. Also, if you think the content is worthwhile, share it with a friend. I am practicing my social media skills, and you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Now, let's get into today's episode. Hi, welcome to the show, Talking Your Way to Change. This is your host, Dr. Banker. Today, we are discussing Imago Relationship Therapy with a special guest who is an experienced Imago therapist, Carol Hornbeck. She is a licensed marriage and family therapist. Carol is licensed in Minnesota and Indiana. She works with couples, families, children, and adolescents on a range of relationship issues, anxiety, depression, grief and loss, and LGBTQ, and adoption. Prior to beginning her clinical work, she was a consultant and educator in child advocacy, abuse prevention and response, and professional ethics. Imago Relationship Therapy was developed by Harville Hendricks and Helen Hunt and forms the basis of that extremely popular book, Getting the Love You Want, Imago Relationship Therapy, otherwise known as IRT, aims to equip couples with the tools necessary to relate to each other in healthier ways and reveal the emotional pathways that were formed in childhood that led them to their current situation. Carol Hornbeck is going to share with us what Imago Relationship Therapy is and how it can help couples relate to each other in healthier ways. Welcome to the show, Carol. Thank you. I'm so grateful that you're willing to have us um, here today and have this conversation with me and help others learn more about this type of therapy. And I truly learned so much myself from interviewing others, and I look forward to this talk. Could you give us some of your background in working with couples and how you became interested in Imago therapy?
1: Yes. Um Harville actually visited the clinical training program that um, I was part of when I was working on my master's degree. And um, I guess was a friend of one of my professors. Uh, so I was intrigued when I first heard him speak. Um, I didn't uh, pursue the study right away, uh, but kind of Used different types of couples therapy, but quickly realized that I was more comfortable and I think therefore more effective when I had a structure for working with couples. Because most couples, you know, their issues are complex. And so, unless you really have a very intentional plan to kind of figure out where they are and then where they want to go and help them figure that out. Um, it takes longer, I think. And um, I think the therapist can't help but bring some of their own issues in terms of experience as being part of a couple to that process. Um, I was excited about Imago because it is so structured and it gives you a plan for really the best and most expedient way to help couples figure out what kind of work they want and need to do and reach their goals.
0: That makes a lot of sense. I've done a little bit of couples work and I've used um, a few of their conversation exercises. um, And I would agree that not having a plan can be really challenging as a therapist and the hour goes by and and I think maybe everyone can or can walk away not feeling like I'm not sure what we accomplished there. Other, um, so I I can totally relate to that. Um, I was thinking it would be fun just to start out a little bit in thinking about romantic love and love, and uh, maybe your understanding of why people fall in love or what romantic love is or what Imago relationship therapy would say about romantic love. Well, um,
1: basically, Imago. Therapy believes that unconsciously we are looking for our ideal of a partner. And even though we may think we know what we want, unconsciously we're going to be choosing some of what we don't want. Yes. Um, You know, we, we tend to think that a lot of it is about sexual attraction and that certainly is a piece of it. You know, we know now that the brain is really complicated and that, you know, pheromones are, are part of the process. And so we think we know what we're looking for. But it's clear that part of what we're looking for is the familiar and the most familiar relationship for most of us is that person or people who raised us. And so the emotional dynamics that are characteristic of the first few years of our lives with our parents or whoever really was our caregiver, those romantic relationships. And that's what makes us think, wow, we've found home. Because both the negative and the positive traits of those people are present in those relationships.
0: Yeah. So it's that um, sexual attraction, you know, part of the processes that are involved in our brain, but it's also, I guess what you're saying, um, that familiarity that is both positive and negative and um, that a lot of that, those processes are unconscious. Okay. How long do you think people stay in romantic love? Or like if you had to sort of look Back on your experience as a therapist, how long? How long before maybe that that phase maybe ends, and or people start to seek um, help for the relationship? Well, um, I think there's some pretty convincing
1: research that suggests that the in love brain is similar to the psychotic brain in some ways, and that um, our brains can't sustain that kind of singular focus that is just, it's almost like being high yes. for more than about a year to a year and a half. And then gradually, we begin to let go of our defenses and let our partner see who we really are. Now, when you're falling in love, you tend to emphasize all of the similarities. Oh, this person is just like me in all these ways, yes. right? And so, then the more familiar we become, uh, the less guarded we are. And the more the person begins to see our faults as well as our good points and we theirs as well. And that stage kind of morphs, especially if couples have children and then they have other kind of external challenges. Um, you know, we're no longer functioning ideally and we're stressed. And so we tend to revert back to what we know. And what we know is the coping mechanisms that we learned early in our lives. So when both people's coping mechanisms, both positive and negative are engaged, that usually leads the couple into some kind of a power struggle. Whose way is it going to be? You know, the way we did it in my family or the way we did it in your family?
0: Yes, and I think some people, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, think that their partner or that they are sort of hiding things from each other or presenting a false self. But it, it's, it seems like it's just sort of a natural process that happens. I would agree with that. Yes. Over time, the effects Over time. of familiarity
1: and yeah. not being as sort of guarded or intentionally
0: putting our best foot forward. Foot forward. Yeah. Yes. Um, Okay, so what does Imago relationship therapy say about the stages of love? Are there do they sort of conceptualize it in different? Well, so once the power struggle is um, in full bloom,
1: couples have to figure out how they're going to cope. And okay. Some some people have a disposition to um, what Imago would call exits. So I'm not that happy in my marriage. So maybe I'm going to start working and staying later at the office. Or when I come home, I'm going to make sure that I have lots of television to watch so that I don't have to talk to my partner. Um, Worst case, people might begin to use alcohol or shopping or gambling or some other um, kind of addictive way uh, to relieve the frustration, sadness, loneliness, boredom um cycle of um, disappointment that happens in the marriage. Um, Hendricks would call all, the, all of those exits. These are the ways I'm gonna distract myself rather than deal with the reality of my relationship. Um, some people also decide to go outside the relationship to get those needs met, and that would be um, having affairs, rather ac- whether actual affairs or emotional affairs. Certainly, is easier now in the age of the internet to have an emotional affair.
0: Right. Um,
1: but the end result is all, always the same in that the person who's unhappy never really manages to convey to their partner the source of their unhappiness. And so together, they don't work on changing the relationship until they're both feeling very unhappy and isolated.
0: So a person doesn't necessarily have to leave the relationship to exit it.
1: Correct, yes. You can find many other ways to, to sort of, and live what, what um, Hendrix I think, would say is a parallel marriage. It's two people, they're more like roommates than marriage partners. They're sharing the same space. Maybe they even share children and other responsibilities, but um, the intimacy
0: begins to erode. And is there any research? Is it if if you've got two people running p- parallel lives, is it sort of that one of the partners finds it sort of untenable anymore, and like brings you know says like let's seek out some couples therapy, or is is the person sort of distressed and sort of saying we need to work on this, we need to work on this, and then finally gives up and then exits?
1: Well, I think those are all possible scenarios. And I think part of it depends on what sort of uh, an attitude uh, you grew up with in relation to seeking outside help. know, oh. If you saw your parents go to therapy, either one okay. or both of them, and maybe even as a child, you had some experience in therapy and it was a positive thing, then you're more likely to go. Um, I see a number of couples where one person maybe had an okay experience or no experience and they're very open. The other person is resistant because as a, as a child, they were kind of dragged kicking and screaming to a therapist and didn't find it to be a very good experience. So I think a lot depends on your predisposition to seeking any kind of outside uh, help. help. Mm-hmm. outside Outside of the
0: family. Correct. Yeah, I was thinking too. Um, When I started my career, I did some couples work. And it seemed when I that was sort of like early 90s, it it felt like the couples that um, I saw had waited a very long time where they they were pretty much both exited before they entered. And now um, I've seen a few couples who, um, that hasn't been the case, that they're Mm -hmm. sort of actually newer in their relationship. And they, in fact, Some of the the exiting they do of the therapy is that they're getting engaged or getting married. And I don't know if that has to do with just the cultural of, you know, younger generations being more willing to um, seek out therapy. But um, that is a new concept to me. And I really like that, what you said about their previous um, experience with getting outside help. Yes. I do a lot of
1: um, marriage preparation work. Yeah. And I find also, if they have a good experience in those sessions, they're more likely to come back. And I tell them that marriage requires regular maintenance, kind of like your car. You know, you wouldn't think of driving your car indefinitely without ever having a tune-up. And if your relationship is as or more important than your car, then it deserves the same. So I encourage couples to come back to see me or see somebody, even if they think things are going well, so that they can kind of anticipate what the next stage will be and and be curious about why things are working well. You know, so they expand their resources and get ready to deal with the next challenge. Okay. It's a more so, proactive instead of waiting yes. until you're online yes. support.
0: Yes, exactly. Um, so we have the romantic stage of the powers and then we have some exiting maybe, <clears throat> what's the next step then? Well,
1: the next step is deciding to have a conscious relationship and to work through the power struggle. Okay. Um, it's going to result, if it, if the work is um, fruitful and successful, in having a more real relationship, more authentic relationship, where all feelings are allowed and um conflict, which is a normal part of every relationship, is seen as an opportunity to grow rather than uh, a cyclical and annoying pattern that never seems to get resolved.
0: Um, how would you describe um, imago-therapy to, to someone who had never, in, you know, I guess it, maybe it's people come to you because they know something about imago therapy, yeah. or if you had a new couple in front of you and they never heard of it before, how do you talk to people about it? Well, the first thing
1: is my, the way my office is set up. Um, I tell them right away that um, if they decide to continue working with me, they're going to be looking at each other rather than looking at me. Nice. <laughs> okay. Yes. My job is, a coach and a process person okay. and a teacher to teach them skills and give them tools that they can walk out of the first session with and use. Because I don't live with them. I don't know, you know the real nature of the content of their struggles. But if they have tools, they will be able to become more adept at managing their conflict and resolving the issues that come up. Um, my goal is to work myself out of a job. So, if, <laughs> um, if they sit side by side and look at me, um, that sort of implies that I'm some kind of an expert. And honestly, I feel a little bit like Judge Judy. You know, yes, they're asking yes, me to take yes. sides, and I really can't, right? Right. Um, but what I can do is, as I said, give them the tools that Amago offers, um, that they can use beginning the first session to become experts in managing their own relationship and continuing to
0: grow. You know, my beginning training was in more psychodynamic therapy. So for me, that grasp of we're choosing our partners, one, that there's unconscious uh, drives at play, and two, that it's related to our caregivers um, was not a leap. But I was thinking that if someone came to this type of therapy, that there would have to be some buy-in in terms of um, those processes. And I wondered, when do you talk to people about that? Are people receptive to that idea? Some people are more re-
1: receptive than others. Um, the wonderful thing about the couples dialogue, um, which is the first exercise that they will will use in that very first session is that they have an immediate um, emotional experience. And um, what we know about learning is that if it's emotional as well as intellectual, that it's going to be retained and it goes into a different part of the brain and that's gonna make more of an impact. So once they have that initial experience, then they're gonna be more open to hearing about the theory and why it works and why we chose the person. But we don't usually start there.
0: Interesting, okay. Yeah, because I wondered if it would be hard to get past some of the defenses, I think, around that. Mm -hmm. Do you wanna talk at all about that exercise or what that looks like? Sure. So it's really
1: formulated to create emotional safety. Okay. And we do that by lis- learning to listen so well that our partner feels completely heard and ultimately understood. Um, I often use the analogy of going to a different country. And so, you know, there's Maryland and um, Laura Land or John Land and <laughs> Maryland. Um, maybe there isn't an equivalent in your native language but your partner's experience is unique to them and it's subjective and so when you listen to your partner it's like going to a foreign country you have to suspend what you know in order fully to understand and listen to your partner and to make sense of what they're saying within the context of what you know about them because there may be no equivalent in your own Um, kind of experience. So we do that by mirroring what the person says. And initially um, we ask for uh, an appointment or we ask the person if they're available. That's always a really important step. Um, It's easy after you've lived with somebody for a long time to do a lot of communicating in almost what feels like a drive by. Like You launch into a long conversation and your partner not only wasn't ready for the conversation, but maybe they're very distracted. So a way to honor the relationship is just to say, are you available for me to share something with you? So that's the first step. That's called intentionality. And if the partner says yes, then you can proceed. And if they say, I'm actually quite distracted right now, then it's up to them to say when would be a good time. So that way you've got the buy-in and the conversation is actually an event, it's a thing. And it has its own structure and its own life. And so then the person who requested the conversation says, um, you know, whatever they want to say, um, I'd like to share with you. Uh, we start out with appreciations. I want to share with you an appreciation. And so then they tell them the thing they appreciate and their partner tells them, I heard you say and gives it right back to them. Um, For a lot of couples, that in and of itself is a big event because they may have become so conflicted that they don't really listen to each other. So if I say something and my partner listens so carefully that they can say back exactly what I said and make me feel heard, things will begin to change.
0: Yes. Yes. Yeah, that's interesting. So there's a couple of things. There's one, it's sort of really um, creating some space around how important it is to have these kind of, I guess, safe conversations. Mm -hmm. Correct. And getting the buy-in and sort of saying, okay, we're going to agree and we're going to agree to use this model, I guess, of Mm -hmm. having this conversation. This is, yep, we've agreed this is the time. And uh, that's interesting, kind of shifting the focus of, oh, by the way, these are the things I really appreciate that you've been doing or that I appreciate about you as a person? Either one. It's always up to that person. But they don't expect to
1: start with appreciation. So they expect to start with the problems. (laughs) But I figure, you know, they appreciate something about each other or they wouldn't be together. Mm -hmm. So if we can start with the strengths, you know, then that opens up more space for the problems.
0: Yes, yeah, it well, it probably helps you see the person as more whole, too. Exactly. It feels like when you get really you know upset with a partner or angry or you are in some of those spaces, it gets pretty narrow mm-hmm. in terms of your conceptualizing them right um, so mirroring, tell me what mi- what not mirroring is and what it means to mirror i guess D- does it mean that you say exactly what they say?
1: So that's a difference, I would say, between active listening and mirroring. Um, The partner can say whether they want an exact mirror or a paraphrase. And for some people, and especially in some circumstances, they're going to want the partner to say back exactly what they said. That way they know that they got the nuance of what they intended to communicate. Sometimes a paraphrase is okay. But the important thing is, the speaker gets to choose. Ah, okay. And I think it's important to point out that in doing so, we're actually beginning to change our brains. Because if you're not in the habit of listening so closely that you can say exactly what was said, that's gonna take some learning. And being able to contain what you want to say back is another part of that learning, because most human beings can listen for about 20 seconds. At the end of the 20 seconds, they've heard something that they want to respond to. And so we begin thinking about what I'm going to say back, and the rest of what my partner said is lost.
0: Oh, absolutely. I loved loved how you phrased that. Yes, this is what I run into all the time, that it's almost, it seems like it's a skill or almost impossible for some People to contain what they want to say back. Correct. That need is so strong, or their their truth feels so strong that it's just it feels so just almost physically painful for them to just kind of hold that back and just Mm -hmm. listen.
1: And again, I think so much of that starts in childhood. If you were lucky enough to have a parent who said, "Oh, you're disappointed because you wanted the red cup and it's in the dishwasher." I can see why you're so frustrated as opposed to a parent who said why are you throwing a fit the red cup is in the dishwasher just use the blue one you know but that's a toddler feeling is I'm old enough to make a choice and I've made it and now I can't have what I want and I'm so frustrated right and so I think the parent's response to the toddler kind of lays the groundwork for how we're going to respond in adulthood you know if somebody really listened to me then I felt valued, and I felt like my choices were important. And even if they couldn't give me what I wanted, they understood my feelings. But if they discounted my feelings in some way, or minimized them, or worst of all, didn't even listen enough to respond, that's going to have a huge impact on how well I can listen to my partner and
0: the importance of my being listened to. Mm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How I can kind of hold both of those realities mm-hmm. with like my partner's reality not negating my own, like that, that they can both exist. Correct. And I can kind of, we can take turns or I can wait. Yes. Learning
1: to take turns is huge because
0: often when couples first come in, they're
1: in the midst of such conflict that they interrupt each other. You know, and they can't even talk about the problem without correcting each other or talking over each other, you know. And other couples are at such a stalemate that their style is to withdraw, and so it's hard to talk, and maybe nobody talks. But underneath that is the fear that as soon as I open my mouth, my partner is going to correct me or interrupt me, so why bother, right? So it really is about creating emotional safety the space to be heard.
0: Emotional safety. What I understand about this exercise, and maybe this is the second step, is that you not only mirror back what the person said, but you validate it, Mm -hmm. even if you disagree with it. Correct. Right. Validating is not the
1: same thing as agreement. When you get good at mirroring, then you add the next step, which is Based on what I know about you, I can see why you see it that way, which is a very different thing from, yes, I know what you mean because I've had the same experience. You know, if you have had the same experience, well, then I'm very happy about that because you can really relate. But in this particular exercise, your goal is not to access your own experience, it's to access what you know about your partner and make sense of what they're saying based on that context. Which is why I likened it to going to another country. You know, you might think you know what the word means, but what does it mean in the native language? Correct.
0: Yes, and it, I feel like even if if you completely disagree, you're validating to your partner that they're not crazy or exactly. it's not out of, out of bounds, right? Yeah. Like it's like okay, that that's logical to me or it makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. And just maybe then, so if we go back to your example with a child with a cup, then the child feels more, um, it, it would be more organizing or feel more in control to have one say, have the parent say back, I understand that you're this upset about it. Correct. And if you have the comfort of being emotionally
1: understood, it is easier to bear disappointment and accept the substitute cup because maybe my parent can't give me what I want in this moment, but at least they know how I feel and they're willing to come alongside me and feel that with me and
0: give my feeling a name. Wonderful. Then is there anything else that happens after that? In the exercise? Yeah, in the exercise.
1: The last stage of the exercise is empathy. So I heard what you said. I heard you say this. I heard you say that. And after each I heard, um, the person checks to make sure they got it and says, is there more? And that way the person who is speaking knows they don't have to (laughs) let out a long monologue. Okay, They can break it up into shorter pieces and the other person can give them back what they heard. Then they say, yes, you make sense to me knowing you the way I do. I can see why you feel that way. And then the last thing is to summarize the emotions. And that's important because you might have um, an experience where you are picking up an emotion from your partner that they actually don't have. That is called projection, okay? Because if I were in your situation, I'd feel this way. So if I say to you, Uh, I imagine that you feel uh, really anxious about that and your your primary feeling is not anxiety, you know, it's maybe frustration or anger or something, then I need to clarify what my assumption was. That's really important. So I'm not thinking about my own feelings, I'm thinking about yours. And I've also had the experience where one partner will say, I imagine that you feel X. And the partner says, gosh, you're right. I wasn't aware I was feeling that until you named it. So thanks. So pinpointing the emotions further clarifies what's going on and makes the couple feel closer.
0: Mm-hmm. And so I'm imagining this this exercise and this couple, and then that's done. Are they tempted then to start to digest that, that conversation more or solve the problem or is that, is that, you know, then what happens?
1: Well, I can tell a lot about where the couple is by how they do with the exercise. You know, in a sense, I, I always acknowledge that I'm asking a lot um, for them to agree to engage in the exercise in the first session. Okay. It really is the best way to get an idea of how I'm going to work with them if they decide to come back. And so I, I want them to have that actual experience rather than just my talking about it in a theoretical way. Um, a lot of people experience it as awkward because they don't usually talk that way. Right. And underneath that, I think, you know, depending on your anxiety level, you um, some people are going to just feel out of control by being directed and being asked to do this and then this, instead of just being free to talk in their normal way. And so it is, you know, an act of trust, which I ask them uh, to invest. And if they have a good experience, then they're probably going to want to do more work. Okay. Um, I always follow up the exercise by asking them to process a little bit what was it like for you. Mm-hmm. And often people will say, well, it was really hard for me to listen so closely that I could say back what I heard. And I realized I'm not actually in the habit of listening very well. Well, that's a huge win because no doubt that's been part of the problem. And if they say that, then their partner really is happy because they've acknowledged what the major complaint is. You don't listen to me, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> And for both of them, it's helpful because then they walk out feeling heard and that gives them some hope.
0: Um, is So let's say that that went successfully and they, they found that helpful and they come back. Then is there an, then is there an, how do you begin then? Is there an educational piece then or do you? Give homework, or is there reading Well, the only
1: homework is just to practice the dialogue. Okay. You know, they have to get really good at it because every session is going to have the dialogue in it. Yep. Every session begins with some breathing exercises, even before we start the dialogue, just to relax and to get out of our sort of reactive reptile brain and be fully present. Okay. And um, most of the session is going to be them talking to each other, and my supporting that. Um, Periodically, I will do what I call psychoeducation to help them understand more about why the exercises are important, and also share feedback about how they can do it more effectively, and what I think is going on in the relationship. Obviously, sometimes I have to ask questions, but I want to be really transparent that they're the ones who are gonna be doing most of the talking because if they can get better at talking and listening to each other, then their
0: relationship is going to get better. Okay. How do you, um, and I don't know if this is is a part of it or not, but in terms of helping partners identify their wounds or the Mm -hmm. the way so say we have the emotional safety is there do the partners start exploring how the 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 specific ways that they're each sort of triggering each other or wanting to be yes
1: yes once they've gotten good at the dialogue uh we start to bring in that piece um when you uh borrow my car and don't fill up the gas tank and bring it back to me i feel extremely frustrated and that frustration reminds me of when i was a child and my brother or sister borrowed my toy and broke it (laughs) and then when i wanted to use it it wasn't available you know so it connects directly to that childhood experience And that's why I get so frustrated when you don't do that. I want to use my car, but there's no gas in it. And you didn't think about me. And then the story I tell myself is that you don't really care about me. Right. And so it's an opportunity for the partner to see, oh, okay, you got really mad. And to me, it wasn't a big deal because I just didn't fill up your gas tank. But it's connecting with a very, very old wound. Of your brother or sister not taking care of your stuff and not thinking about you and so that most of what really irritates us in the relationship is less about our partner
0: in the present and more about the wounds of childhood and if Say, okay, so if I'm the person that um, is reacting to that you didn't fill up my car and I'm really frustrated and I understand, then what? Is it part like that my partner has to change and fill up my car all the time or do I need to do some work individually or, you know?
1: Yeah, so when we get to that part where we're ready to do the behavior change requests, what I would like in the future is if for some reason you run out of time and you can't fill up my gas tank, I wanna make sure that you let me know. So then I can allow extra time so I can do that, okay? okay? And if you use my car and bring it back without gas and don't tell me that the gas tank is empty, that's really gonna frustrate me because it's gonna make me feel like you just didn't hear why that was so frustrating to me, okay? So you okay. can give your partner options. This is what I'd like, you know? and. You know, if you really want to make me happy, just take my car and, you know, while I'm doing something else, and fill up the gas tank, even if you don't need to use it. You know, that would really be an act of caring, which is another goal of Imago therapy: is to re-romanticize the relationship by looking at what is each person's um, expressive and receptive love language, and how can we put more of the caring back into the relationship that was probably there in the beginning when they first fell in love. The things that they've gotten out of the habit of doing for each other, that really made each one feel seen and special and cared for,
0: and that's called Mm re-romanticizing. Did you say okay? Yeah. And how? What kind of love languages did you call them again? You said expressive. um, Yeah, Yeah.
1: I'm borrowing from the work of Gary. Oh, his. Oh, Chapman. Yes. And he identifies that people feel cared for in different ways. Um, Let's see, gifts, uh, acts of service, physical touch, quality time or affirmations, he says are the main ways. And he says that um, we tend to express love in the way that we want to receive it. But sometimes couples are mismatched. Like if I came from a family where Gifts were really important, and they were really special, and I try to impress my partner by giving them gifts, but if they grew up in a family where gifts were a source of anxiety, you know, maybe people got the wrong things, or they waited until the last minute to go shopping, or there was comparing about whose gift cost more, then probably their love language is not going to be gifts. And so no matter how many gifts I buy for my partner, it's not going to give them the message that they're really special to me because the act of giving gifts isn't, doesn't mean to them what it means to me. And so part of Imago is helping each partner understand why is this your love language and how could I get better at speaking it
0: mm-hmm. instead
1: mm-hmm. of assuming that what makes me feel cared for is the same thing that you want.
0: Is there anything else in the re-romanticizing that you wanted to comment on? Oh, is that um, also the de- the appreciation? Absolutely, yes. Okay. Um, we
1: want to make appreciation uh, a habit. And I tell them when they do their homework to do it at least 3 times a day. And they can be really creative, you know, they can leave post-it notes around for each other to find or they can text each other or they can actually say them. But getting in the habit of appreciating is really important because, like John Gottman says, it takes five positives to make up for one negative. So, if you have a huge deposit of affection and appreciation in your relationship, then when you do have to complain about something, your partner's going to be much more willing to listen and take it in, as opposed to a relationship where it feels like endless criticism and complaints.
0: Yes, I love applying, I'll apply that one to myself from Gottman. I'll say, if you make this complaint, you're going to have to make it, you're going to have to come up with five (laughs) positives. And that seems like a lot of energy. So maybe I'm just going to keep this one to myself. Yeah. So
1: it's almost um, like an inoculation, you know?
0: Yes. (laughs) Yes. uh, But yes. Yeah. Keeping that tank full. And it Mm -hmm. seems like that would just be fun too, like kind of playful, you know, that idea of maybe like leaving sticky notes. And I'm guessing that's the stuff that we all did at the beginning of the relationship. And we never thought about it. Not
1: only did we not, not think about it, I think as time goes on, we stop asking for those things because we just get out of the habit. Other things take precedence. And then sometimes partners feel silly asking for those things but that's what they're really longing for is they want to feel special again.
0: Yes. Um, Let's see if there's other things. Zero negativity was another concept I read about. Is that? Yeah, well, that really gets to the whole criticism
1: thing. Oh, okay. if If you create emotional safety through listening and mirroring, then oh, you're you're I not going to have any
0: negativity. Hang on a second. It. I think we cut up. We 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 cut out for a second. So let me just say this again. So yeah, if you wanted to comment on the zero negativity,
1: mm-hmm. yes. So that's creating a climate where all of your partner's feelings and everything that they think and believe feels acceptable. So if you had a parent who said to you, "Oh, you shouldn't feel that way." Can you hear me? Yep, I can. Okay. Yep. Okay. Yep. If you had a parent who said to you, you shouldn't feel that way. Don't feel okay. disappointed. Look on the bright side or you, you oh. shouldn't be angry about that. Okay. Then yes. you got the message as a child that some of your feelings were not okay. Okay.
0: Yes. And so yes.
1: to heal those childhood wounds, you need your partner to say, I get it. You're feeling really angry or you're feeling really disappointed without any comment or criticism or um, anything uh, that, that tells you you're f- like
0: shaming or blaming for their Correct. behavior yeah. or feelings. Okay. Interesting. Um, when you work with folks, I, I heard that you really like having a um, structure do you integrate different theories of counseling or do you kind of stick with one? I, I guess I just was curious about that.
1: Well, certainly with couples, I'm going to be doing Imago. And, you know, the better I understand, uh, family systems and family dynamics, the better I'm going to be able to help them understand their own families. And there are specific exercises where they, um, share with their partner things about growing up, Um, and so that's a place where I would add a lot of psychodynamic and um, psychoeducation to help people understand more about their specific families. But I do that within the context of the Imago work, and it's not um, a departure from that. It's just a way to enrich
0: that uh, part of the therapy. Okay. Is um, One of my kind of final questions is, is there something that people often misunderstand about imago therapy? Hmm. Well, as I said, I think that
1: getting into the dialogue and being willing to change your brain is a big ask. And I think that um, at the beginning, it can feel kind of awkward, stilted, and... Um, I often hear, well, when are we going to get to the issues, okay? <laughs> because they come in almost, like, if they're really in high conflict, expecting me to be a mediator and say who's right and who's wrong and what's reasonable and what isn't. Mm-hmm. And that's not my job. You know, obviously, if there's abuse going on, I'm going to have to <laughs> be very direct about that. But most couples don't come in with that particular issue. Um, And so, you know, the, not so much a misconception, but a a frustration that you have to learn the tools before you can really begin to deal with the issues. Because if the way that they'd been dealing with the issues was effective, then they wouldn't be here. (laughs) Exactly. You know, the point is you need some new approaches here because what you've been doing isn't working for you.
0: Yes. Oh, I I love that. Right? It isn't really about the issues per se, about money or sex or should we have a child or, you know, we're fighting about this or that. It is really that process, and I love that idea of of saying this is like we're going to change your brain, and that's hard. It's like going yeah. to the gym. Yeah.
1: But it gets easier the more you practice.
0: Well, and, and it and feels great.
1: Yeah. As the right? couple gets better and better, they feel more confident that they really do have the tools to solve any problem that comes up.
0: Yes. Is there anything that you want to say about Imago that I haven't asked you about? Well, it works with parents and children.
1: It works with siblings. Um, oh. I use the couple's dialogue with just about any group I work with, um, primarily to help people feel listened to, heard, understood, and to create um, an emotional connection that then makes people more invested in solving whatever problems they have. Um, I also think it's great for kids to acquire those skills um, young because then they're gonna have better friendships, better relationships, and ultimately, one day if they decide to choose a partner, they're gonna have a better experience. But it really diffuses a lot of the conflict in parent-child
0: relationships as well. Yeah, I was thinking about that. Mm -hmm. I was thinking that it might even be um, an easier place to start or that perhaps you might feel more generous in doing the exercise where you're not you're not quite able to sort of imagine doing that with your partner, could you imagine doing it with your child? You know, Mm -hmm. listening in this different way and containing your argument back. Um, Sometimes
1: that's true. And I also think that when couples work through um, their own childhood wounds, um, they become better parents and
0: um, more available emotionally to their children. Uh, so that, yeah, that's a wonderful point. Well, this was really fun. Thank you so much. It was really I enjoyable. I appreciate you asking
1: me. I always about this part of my work. Yeah, it's just fascinating. Um, how do people find you? So I have a website. Okay. It's I'll... hornbecklmft.com. And my phone number is on that website. And they're welcome to...
0: Um, contact me directly. And do you work full time or part time? Or right now, I'm working mostly full time. <laughs> okay. In a private practice, I am assuming. Um,
1: no, I'm actually. Um, I do have a private practice, and then I'm also in a group um, out of oh. uh, Westminster uh, Counseling Center. Okay. But we're all
0: doing virtual work right now, so. <laughs> okay. Yep. So am I. Well, thank you so much. Thank you.
1: It was great to meet you and uh, great to have an opportunity to talk about Amaga.
0: Hi, everyone. Thanks again for listening. I need to alert you that this podcast is not meant to be a substitution for mental health treatment. Although we talk about psychotherapy, this is not your psychotherapy. If listeners are interested in pursuing therapy, I would refer you to psychologytoday.com/US or your insurance carrier network.